So today we are in Matthew chapter 9, uh, verses 1 through 8. And as you can see, we're returning, because I have part 2 on there, we're returning to a theme that we had first covered back on July 2nd. And if you recall back then, we were in Matthew chapter 8 where we had seen that Jesus' healings were really designed to show us that he is the Messiah g- capable of giving us the ultimate healing, the forgiveness of sins, and everlasting life. And so today we're going to see that Christ's healing of this paralytic man in Matthew 9 proves that Jesus of Nazareth is in fact the Messiah predicted in the Old Testament who would come about and bring this messianic age in which we would have, as it says in Malachi 4.2, healings in its wings. Now today the question I think for us is will we be content as the people of God for looking for, longing for this ultimate healing that Christ gives, the forgiveness of sins and everlasting life, or will we live only for the pleasures of this world? That's what we're going to be confronted with. Now, today I want to begin in Matthew 9, verses 1 through 2, and I want to set the stage. Recall last time Jesus was on the Gentile side of the Sea of Galilee. That's the eastern and the southeastern side. Remember, he gets in the boat here, ends up back at Capernaum on the northwest side of the Sea of Galilee after he'd healed the demoniac. So that's where we pick it up here, Matthew 9, 1 through 2. It says, getting into a boat, Jesus crossed over the sea and came to his own city. And they brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. Seeing their faith, Jesus said to the paralytic, take courage, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, dear ones, I want you to notice here in verse 1 that it says Jesus got in this boat, he crossed over, and he came to his own city. His own city now is no longer Nazareth. That was his hometown, but because of the persecution there, he had left, and in his providential care of history, he brought about Capernaum as the city that would be the headquarters of for his earthly ministry. And so that's where he is. He's in Capernaum. And so notice in verse 2, it says, they brought to him a paralytic. And this, of course, raises the question, who were the they? Well, Matthew doesn't explicitly tell us, but Mark chapter 2 is indeed a parallel account. And there we learn that there was four men that brought the paralytic man on this bed to Jesus. Now, whether these four men were all friends or all family members or a combination thereof, we don't know. But we do know that they must have had enough trust to know that Jesus could heal. The other thing I want to mention before I go any further is notice that by them bringing a paralytic man to Jesus, this sets up a big issue with the Jews because the Jews believed that whether it was a man born paralyzed or a man who was born blind from birth... That kind of healing, the healing of a paralyzed man who couldn't walk, required an act of God that would be on par with the initial creation, ex nihilo, meaning out of nothing. Why? Because the man didn't merely need restoration. He needed the ability that didn't exist. Now, to be fair, we're not told how long this paralytic man had been paralyzed, but I want you to keep that in the back of your mind that the Jews understood the healing of the paralyzed and the blind, as we see in the book of John, as being on par with the initial creative act of God who created the universe out of nothing. Now, I want you to see here that Matthew points out the faith that Jesus sees in these men. He says, seeing their faith, Jesus said to the paralytic, take courage, son, your sins are forgiven. The there probably is not just the men who brought him, but the paralytic as well. But I want you to think about, according to Mark 2, what kind of effort these men went through in order to bring their friend to Jesus lying on a bed. If you recall in Mark 2, they not only had to go through a crowd to get to the home, but then they lifted his bed up on a roof, where then they tore apart the thatch roof and they lowered him down. Matthew doesn't give us all that data, but he just simply shows that Jesus recognized their faith. Now, notice what Jesus said to the paralytic man in blue. He said, take courage, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, the term take courage there in the blue 
It's actually one term in the Greek, it's thoreso, and it is a command to take courage in the face of great difficulty or even danger. Now, added to that, notice Jesus calls him son. The term there is actually techno, and it's child. And I only mention that because I think it probably indicates this paralytic man was younger than Jesus, who at the time Jesus would have been somewhere in his 30s. And so, indeed, this paralytic man was facing a very grim reality of living in the ancient Near East in a paralyzed state. He couldn't work. There weren't the wheelchairs as we know them now. And so this is a very grim situation. And yet notice Jesus says, take courage, son. He's encouraging him, but unexpectedly he doesn't say what you and I would probably do, mentioning the man's infirmity. Instead, he says, take courage. Your sins are forgiven. And this is shocking. That's not why the man initially came. But the question for us is, that why he should have come? Now, I think this statement is really designed by Jesus to do two things. Number one, it is a shot across the bow to the scribes who are in the presence of this miracle happening because they know that God alone is the one who can forgive sins. And so this is a shot across their bow. But number two, by Jesus saying, your sons are forgiven, he is showing this young paralytic man, remember child, he's a young man. He's showing not only the paralytic man and the audience around him, but even us, the audience today, what the most essential issue is, and that is having the ultimate healing, forgiveness of sins, which leads to everlasting life. Brothers and sisters, by Jesus saying these very words that we see in blue, this man stood forever justified before God, sins forgiven, heading for eternal glory. That, as we see, is far greater than even receiving the ability to walk, as precious as that is. Now, as we continue here in verses 3 through 5, we see the scribes who certainly are present here react to Jesus' pronouncement of the forgiveness of sins. It says, And some of the scribes said to themselves, This fellow blasphemes. And Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why are you thinking evil in your hearts? Which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Get up and walk. Now, the first thing I want to point out in the text is notice the scribes were speaking to themselves. That's Matthew's way of showing us that Jesus knows their thoughts and their heart in a supernatural way. In other words, they weren't speaking in such a way that others could hear them. They were speaking amongst themselves, and yet Christ supernaturally knows what's in their hearts. I'll come back to that in just a moment. Now, who are these scribes? The scribes here are not the legal scholars of Jerusalem that Jesus will contend with later. Rather, they are the legal scholars around the Galilean area. And notice what they claim. They say, this fellow blasphemes. The accusation made by these scribes is that Jesus is blaspheming God by claiming the authority to forgive sins that belongs to God alone. That's their accusation. Now, I want you to think about how this charge of blasphemy will later be the very charge led by the scribes in Jerusalem that leads Jesus to the cross when we get to Matthew 26. It's the very same allegation. Now, what you have to know here is that this charge of blasphemy against Christ brought about by the enemies of Christ has a tremendous apologetic value for you and I now. Now, why do I say that? Think about the enemies of Christ, as we see depicted here, knew that Jesus was declaring himself to be God or to do things that only God could do. Make no mistake about it. The Bible records that Jesus claimed to be God, that he did the very things of God. Now it's in our lap. Are we going to say, yes, after seeing the data, Jesus is Lord, he's God? Or are we going to say he's a legend, a lunatic, or a liar? If you recall years and years ago, I don't remember the exact date, but I think Josh McDowell was the one who coined, there are only four possibilities for Christ's claims about himself. And the four can be boiled down to all 
words that begin with an L. He's either a legend, a lunatic, a liar, or he's Lord. Let's begin with the legend. Is Jesus just merely a legend? Well, of course he's not a legend. We know that Jesus of Nazareth existed. Not only do we have the eyewitness accounts from the very apostles who were there on the scene, that's most important, but we have secular historians, Flavius Josephus, Tacitus, Pliny the Younger, just to name a few, who corroborate and validate the biblical authors. Yes, Jesus of Nazareth existed. Well, now you're down to three. Is he a lunatic? Was Jesus just crazy someone who claimed to be God, thinking they really were all the while they weren't? Well, that's not the data that we see from the eyewitnesses. Why? Because Jesus does the very things that God alone can do. Whether it's healing, raising the dead, calming the sea, or here even making a lame man leap like a deer. Jesus does what only God can do. No, dear ones, he's not a lunatic. He is not a liar. He is, in fact, the Lord. And it's my prayer that everyone will, in fact, come to that very conclusion from what we see here. Jesus Christ is depicted as God, Lord of all. In fact, notice here in verse 4, we see further evidence of Jesus' lordship. It says, Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why are you thinking evil in your hearts? By Matthew recording that, we're seeing that Jesus indeed is the heart knower from the Old Testament. Bob and I have talked a lot about uh, Jeremiah 17 and 1 Corinthians 4. In fact, Bob mentioned that passage today in Sunday school where God alone is indeed the heart knower. And we're going to talk more about that in our application. But I want you to see here, I've also mentioned numerous times, I've said to you that for the Hebrew, the heart is synonymous with the thought life. So if God knows your heart, he knows your thought life. So the center of our thought life, our heart, has to do with our will, our intellect, and our emotions. And we see that very thing right here. Notice it says that he knew their thoughts. That's enthumesis. That's the same as knowing the heart, the plural form of cardia. Most of you have heard of a cardiac event or something like that. That's the idea of heart. So knowing the thoughts is synonymous with knowing the heart. And that's further evidence that indeed the heart is the center of the thought life. Now, we're going to come more into that when we get to our application, but I want you to notice here in verse 5, Jesus gets to the essential issue by asking this question. He says, which is easier to say your sins are forgiven or to say get up and walk? And I want you to note very carefully that Jesus doesn't ask the question, which is easier to say your sins are given? I'm sorry, he actually says, which is easier to say? He doesn't say, which is easier to do? Does everyone see that? So by Jesus asking that question, of course, we come to the conclusion, yes, it is easier to say your sins are forgiven rather than be healed or get up and walk because if someone was to claim that my sins were forgiven, there's no window on my body that rolls over and says sins are forgiven. We, are, we don't see that. That's not objectively observable by humanity. And so the point that Jesus is driving at is that, yes, it's actually much easier to say that your sins are forgiven than it is to heal the person. But the very important issue, the most important issue, isn't whether you're physically healed, but whether your sins are forgiven. What we see throughout the Gospels is Jesus' ability to physically heal proves that he has the ability to spiritually heal. Jesus, during his first coming, gives temporary healings so that you know when he comes at his second coming, he'll give the ultimate healing, resurrection life, and eternal life in the glorious kingdom. And so that's what we see here. Jesus is going to show through this miracle that he really does have messianic and divine credentials. Notice Jesus says in blue, but so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Then he said to the paralytic, get up, pick your bed and go home. Pick up your bed and go home. And he got up 
and went home. But when the crowd saw this, they were awestruck and glorified God who had given such authority to man. Now, dear ones, notice here in blue, Jesus links himself to being the son of man. He wants everyone to know that the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins. The son of man is Jesus' favorite self-designation of himself throughout the gospels. And you and I might expect son of God or Messiah or something like that. Why does Jesus choose the son of man? Because it directly relates us back to Daniel chapter 9, excuse me, Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 through 14, where you have the Son of Man, who is the Messiah, who rules and reigns over all. That's what Jesus wants us to know. He is the Messiah who has all authority to forgive sins. So then what does he do? Well, he gives the command to get up, pick up your bed, and to go home. The fact that this paralytic man can carry his bed is astonishing. Think about it. A man who's been paralyzed for any length of time goes through great atrophy of the muscle. That's what they're going to have. Their legs are going to atrophy almost to nothing if you can't work them or use them for any length of time. Most of you know that I took a tumble off my steps back in January, and I'll tell you, it took a while to get my right leg so I could even move it. I couldn't move it for a few months. It atrophied. This man is made so whole that not only can he get up and walk, he can pick his bed up and walk with it. And the design of that is to show you this man didn't just have a little bit of a better day. This was an ex nihilo out of nothing. He didn't have the ability to walk, and he's normal. He's made normal. And what I love is perhaps one of the greatest understatements of all time anywhere in the Bible. After Jesus does this, he makes the layman leap like a deer, as it were. He heals him. Verse 7, it says, and he got up and went home. <laughs> I love it. He got up and he went home. Well, of course, what else did he do? Have a tuna fish sandwich? I just went home. I love it. Of course, what happens after the Messiah heals you? Well, you get up and you go home. But juxtaposed to that great understatement is the great commotion in verse 8 when it says the crowd saw this and they were awestruck. The, the man who's healed, he gets up and he goes home. But these people are awestruck. The term awestruck there, phobeo, literally has to do with fear. Many of you have heard of different phobias. This is fear that they're, that they're incurring. Why? Because it is a fearful thing to see the miraculous display of the Holy One of Israel, God incarnate. It's a fearful thing. But I want you to notice here that there's a positive result where it says, and they glorified God who had given such authority to men. And I don't want you to come away with this idea as some have who merely claim Matthew is extending this authority that God has to all men. No, the idea here that's being conveyed is these people know that Jesus is in, in fact, the category of a man. But they're wrestling with what kind of man he is, just as the disciples did back in Matthew chapter 8. Recall, they see Jesus calm the sea in this tremendous storm like that. And what was their question? What manner of man is this that even the winds and the seas obey him? They are wrestling with what kind of man has this kind of power. And the conclusion they are going to come to is he's the God-man. That is the same conclusion that some, even in the crowds, are coming to as they give glory to God, knowing that some of his authority has even reached down to this man, who therefore must be the Messiah. The Old Testament predicted the Messiah would be truly God and truly man who alone could control the waves of the sea, who could raise the dead, heal the blind, and make even a lame man leap like a deer. Jesus is the Messiah. Okay, now, with that, let's come to some application points. I have three of them for you here this morning that I believe logically are connected to the meaning of the text. Bob, and, Bob was talking about how do we determine applications today in Sunday school, and he rightly said that our applications have to be connected 
to the meaning of the text. And so here, let me give you three that I think are. Number one, we should know that Jesus' ability to physically heal proves his ability to give everlasting life to his people. Jesus said, so that you would know the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, get up and walk. The getting up and walk, the physical, prove that he can heal the spiritual. Number two, we should realize Christ's divine nature by his ability to know the thoughts of men. That's unique. And in our application, we'll talk about how you and I don't have the rights to say, I know exactly what's in the hearts or the thoughts or the motives in someone else's life. We don't. That's something God alone knows. Number three, we must know that the ultimate healing we all need is the forgiveness of sins for everlasting life. Brothers and sisters, Jesus himself said, what would a man gain if he gained the whole world yet lost his soul? We'll talk about that, that ultimate healing that all of us need. Let's begin with number one. I mentioned earlier in our first message on this topic back in Matthew 8 that Jesus' healings really do prove his messianic credentials. And so as Jesus is doing these healings, he is fulfilling various texts in the Old Testament that prove he's the Messiah. One of them that I turned our attention to that's very important is Isaiah 35, verses 5 through 6. If there was ever a refrigerator magnet verse, this would be one of them. Because in this text, ultimately I'll show you this is about the millennial kingdom, but it's also fulfilled at Jesus' first coming to prove he's the long-awaited Messiah. Let's read it. It says, regarding the messianic age, then the eyes of the blind will be opened and the ears of the deaf will be unstopped. Then the lame will leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute will shout for joy. For waters will break forth in the wilderness and streams in the Arabah. Dear ones, this is the very text that Jesus himself cites when John the Baptist has his moment of doubt. Remember in Matthew 11, we're going to come to that in just two chapters, John the Baptist has that moment of doubt. He's about to be beheaded. And he asks the question, are you the coming one? Or literally the one who comes? It's a messianic phrase. Or should we look for another? Literally, John the Baptist is asking, are you the Messiah? Or should we look for another? And as that message goes back to Jesus, do you remember how Jesus responds? He blends Isaiah 35, 5 and 6 with Isaiah 61. He says to John, he says, tell John the blind see, the deaf hear, the lame leap like a deer, and the good news, Isaiah 61, is preached to the poor. Jesus cites his miracles that we just saw today as evidence he's the Messiah. Now, ultimately, I think this text will be fulfilled in the future millennial reign. Notice at the end of verse 6. It talks about these waters breaking forth in the wilderness and streams in the Arabah. That is the area of the Dead Sea. Now, if you're a careful reader of Scripture, do you remember in Ezekiel 47, that same promise is given as Messiah reigns from Jerusalem, living streams will come forth literally and symbolically. Let me just stop there. People often ask, are those streams that come from the throne, are they literal or are they symbolic? Yes, Was the flag on Mount Suribachi in Iwo Jima when the Marines raised it, was it real or was it symbolic? Yes. The men who fought and bled really placed a real flag on Mount Suribachi. And it was highly symbolic that no matter what the Japanese did, the Marines are a coming. And yes, that's exactly what we have with streams breaking forth from the very throne room of Christ as he reigns from Jerusalem. There's going to be life in, even in the Arabah, even in the desert, even in the Dead Sea, it's going to spring forth life. So the point is that the first coming, Jesus gives you a down payment. The blind see, the deaf hear, the lame leap like a deer. All so that you know that he is the Messiah that you can trust in who will one day bring this ultimate healing. That's the point that's being made throughout the Gospels with Christ's healings. Now, one thing I want to point out, I don't want to leave this behind. I know I hit this the first time, but let's hit it again. Not only do miracles prove the credentials of Jesus, the Messiah, but we have to see that as the apostles do the same kind of healings, their apostolic credentials are also being authenticated. 
Okay, so for example, turn your Bibles, if you will, to Acts chapter 8, verse 6. Acts chapter 8, verse 6. As you're turning to Acts 8, 6, recall the programmatic verse for Acts. I think it's Acts 1, 6, where Jesus says of his apostles, his very personal spokesman, that they were going to be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. So think about Jerusalem, Judea, Jewish. Samaria, half Jew, half Gentile is the idea. The ends of the earth, it's all Gentile. And I want you to see that throughout the Bible, not only is the gospel preached in that order, but the miracles done at the hands of the apostles happen in the same order. They first happen in Jerusalem and Judea at the hands of Peter, the apostle. He allows the lame to walk. But notice here in Acts 8, 6, here we have Philip with the Samaritans, half Jews, half Gentiles. In Acts 8, 6, it says, The crowds with one accord were giving attention to what was said by Philip, that's the apostle, as they heard and saw the things which he was performing. So they're listening to his gospel, and they're seeing the signs that he performed, and we see exactly what these signs were. Acts 8, 7, it says, For in the case of many who had unclean spirits, they were coming out of them shouting with a loud voice. Stop there. Didn't we see Jesus, the Messiah, cast out demons? At the end of Matthew 8, we sure did. Now, Philip does the same. Why? Because he's an authoritative spokesman for Christ. But notice here it says, And many who had been paralyzed and the lame were healed. Not only does the Messiah enable the lame man to leap like the deer, Isaiah 35, 6, but the authoritative spokesmen, the apostles, they do the same thing. Not because they're better human beings than we are, not because they have more of the Spirit than we do, but because God is authenticating that they are indeed the spokesmen for Christ. They are uniquely the sent ones, such that if we would reject the words that come from apostolic authority, we're rejecting the very words of Christ who sent them. That's the idea. And so let's fast forward from Samaria. Let's go to the ends of the earth. Here's Acts 14. Here's Paul going to do the same miracle now in all Gentile territory. Acts 14, 8 and 10b, it says, At Lystra, a man was sitting who had no strength in his feet, lame from his mother's womb. Stop there. What did I talk about earlier in our message? That if someone was born lame and yet they end up being healed, the Jews recognized that that was a miracle on par with God's initial creative act in Genesis 1-1 because he never had the ability to walk. God isn't merely restoring what was. He's giving ex nihilo out of nothing something that never was. The same with the man born blind in the book of John. The same idea. In fact, notice the text is very clear. Who had never walked. You can't miss it. This man never had the ability to walk. And all of a sudden, God ex nihilo, out of nothing, gives this man the ability to walk. It says what? He leaped up and began to walk. The term leap there is a direct reference back to Isaiah 35, 6. Brothers and sisters, the apostles were unique. They were personally and objectively called by Christ himself, number one. Number two, the apostles were eyewitnesses of the resurrection, 1 Corinthians 9, 1. Number three, they did miraculous deeds. Number four, they were personally instructed by Christ himself. No human being can meet these criteria today. Those who claim that they are modern-day apostles are, in fact, $3 bills. They're not genuine. No, dear ones, these miracles authenticated the apostles were the spokesmen of God. Okay, now with that, let's turn to our second issue today, and that is we saw more evidence of Jesus' divine nature by seeing that he was, in fact, the heart-knower, just as God was. In fact, we saw that in Matthew 9.4. Notice it says in Matthew 9.4, Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why are you thinking evil in your hearts? And again, I'm showing you that there is a parallel between thoughts and thumesis and the plural form of cardia, their hearts. To know the thoughts of men is to know the very hearts of men. 
Why is that significant? Because the Bible, whether it's the Old or the New Covenant, it makes it very clear that God alone is the heart knower. In fact, turn, a, turn your Bibles to Jeremiah 17, verses 9 through 10. That's a text that Bob and I have pointed people a lot to over the years. But it bears repeating. Jeremiah 17, verses 9 through 10. Please turn your Bibles there, and you will see that God alone is the heart knower. Jeremiah 17, let's start in verse 9. Notice it says, The heart is more deceitful than all else, and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? Stop there. A couple points. First of all, notice how bad the human heart is. It's not a good heart that just has a few little problems. It's a desperately sick heart. That's the doctrine of depravity. Total depravity. We are so depraved that when you get to Romans 3, none seek after God, no, not one. Now, notice the rhetorical question. Who can understand it? It's so bad and deceitful. Well, the implied answer is God alone. Well, then that answer is specifically and explicitly given in verse 10. Notice it says, I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind, even to give to each man according to his ways, according to the results of his deeds. Brothers and sisters, God alone is the heart knower. Today, because Jesus knows the heart, who must he be? Well, he must be God. Now, turn to another text. Let's turn to 1 Corinthians 4, 5. You see it on the screen. This is a passage. Bob did a wonderful job in teaching and leading us through. 1 Corinthians 4, 5. Remember, the Corinthians are casting uh, really accusations against the motives of Paul. And others for that matter. Well, notice Paul says you can't know the motives. Only God knows those things. 1 Corinthians 4, 5, Paul says, Therefore, do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes. Stop there. Who's coming? Well, the Lord Jesus. So notice what the Lord Jesus can do, who will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts. And then each man's praise will come to him from God. Who alone can disclose the motives of men's hearts, their thoughts? Jesus, the Lord can. Now, I think this has particular application to us living in America in the year 2023, because as I look out at our culture, what I want to do is share a little contrast between the culture and what we should be. In the culture, I see it much dominated by cultural Marxism. And one of the worst accusations that I see launched against people with no evidence is that they are a racist. Racism used to mean that you think some human being is inferior merely because of their race or their skin color, and therefore you don't like them. That definition has been changed by the Marxist to mean if you don't agree with our Marxist policies that are destroying your country, you're a racist. But I want you to know that that accusation of being a racist is a vile and disgusting slander unless people have either something that someone has said or that they have done as evidence. Why? Because God alone knows the motives of the heart. And in fact, what the Marxists are doing is they're becoming professional slanderers. The very loiteros in 1 Corinthians 6 that will not inherit the kingdom of God because without any evidence, they are suggesting a whole group of people are evil merely because they disagree with them. Without any evidence, dear ones, you and I learn from Matthew 7, what can you and I actually judge? We can judge them by their fruit. What's the fruit? The motives of the heart? Can you see the motives of someone's heart? No, God alone can. But what can you see? The doctrine and the deed. That's what we judge. But without any doctrine or deed, whole swaths of our citizenry are being labeled racist. It's evil. And those who are doing it are slandering and doing an evil deed. Brothers and sisters, let us not follow after the culture. Let us be those who are careful not to judge others regarding the motives of their heart or their thought life, which we can't know. Yes, we judge what we hear them say and what we see them do. We judge doctrine indeed, but we don't know the motives of the heart. The Lord alone does. 
Let us not be like the culture that has become a bunch of professional slanderers that are heading for the lake of fire. Okay, let's go to our third point. And this is the major point that I want to leave you with today is that today we saw Jesus' ability to do the temporary healings shows you that he has the ability to give the ultimate healing. And one of the great passages that we see the Messiah's ultimate healing is found in Malachi chapter 4. Remember, Malachi 3 and 4 are both about Elijah, the prophet who precedes the coming of the Lord, both in his first and second advent. But we also see that, in fact, the texts are about the Messiah. And that's what we see here in Malachi 4, 1 through 2. Notice what Malachi says about this ultimate healing that you and I are looking forward to because of the Messiah's work in our life. Notice he says, For behold, the day is coming, burning like a furnace, and all the arrogant and every evildoer will be chaff. And the day that is coming will set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness will rise with healing in its wings, and you will go forth and skip about, like calves from the stall. Now, dear ones, I want you to notice, first of all, in red, it says that the day is coming. What day is it referring to? The day of the Lord. That's what Malachi is referring to. And by the way, in my upcoming eschatological class I will, online on YouTube, I will be talking about the day of the Lord. Succinctly, the day of the Lord is a broad period of time still in our future in which God finally and forever saves his people and he finally and forever judges his enemies. Now, let me unpack that. You and I have all been justified the moment we trusted in Jesus Christ. You and I had our sins forgiven. But in God's eyes, we're also glorified. Remember Romans eight twenty nine and 30. For those whom he predestined, he called. For those he called, he justified. For those he justified, he also glorified. But you and I have not experienced that yet. When Jesus returns a second time, we're going to be given a resurrection and we're forever going to be with the Lord so that we're forever secure. Our security will be realized finally and forever. But the enemies of Christ are going to head one day to a judgment in the 70th week of Daniel, followed by a future judgment in the lake of fire, in which they will be judged not just for a day or a week or a month or a year, but finally and forever. That's the day of the Lord. So notice the contrast, what the day of the Lord is to the unregenerate, the unbeliever is different than what it is to us. The day of the Lord for the unbeliever, notice, is burning like a furnace. Notice how the unbeliever is described. All the arrogant and every evildoer will be chaff. Notice it says that this day that is coming will set them ablaze, that they will be left with neither root nor branch. That's for the unbeliever, finally and forever. But for us who have the healing from Christ, he says in verse 2, but for you who fear my name, that's stop there. That's synonymous with saving faith. Remember Proverbs 1, 6, the fear of Yahweh is the beginning of knowledge. Those who have saving faith, they fear the Lord. They don't fear mankind. Ultimately, they fear the Lord. So he says, you who fear my name, notice he says, the son of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings. Now, this is a strange metaphor that you see in blue. What does it mean that the Son of Righteousness will rise with healing in its wings? The idea is when the Messianic age dawns, it's going to be like the dawning of a new day that's comprised not only of righteousness, but of healing as well. When the Davidic ruler reigned in the Old Testament, if they did so righteously, it was like the dawning of a beautiful new day after a rainstorm. It's the dawning of a new day in which you're going to have healing rather than hurt. In fact, turn your Bibles, if you will, to 2 Samuel 23, verses 3 through 4. I want you to see where this idea of the sun rising of a new day in righteousness and healing, where it all came from. It came from the lesser David, King David, who ruled and reigned from Jerusalem around 1000 B.C. Turn to 2 Samuel 23. Verses 3 through 4. Second Samuel 23, verses 3 through 4. By the way, this is David's last song here. 
And so David in this text, if you read the whole thing, verses 1 through 2, he talks about how he was a prophet, how he had the very words that came from the Spirit. He's testifying that when he wrote, he wrote Scripture. He's saying that he gave us the very words of Christ. Think about the significance of that. He wrote Psalm 1610, that the holy one would not see decay. That's about the resurrection. David wrote doctrine a thousand years prior to Christ's birth about the resurrection of Christ. So says the apostle Peter. He was a prophet, a prophet and a king. Notice what he says here. He says, the God of Israel said, the rock of Israel spoke to me. So this is Yahweh speaking to David. He says, he who rules over men righteously, who rules in the fear of God, is as the light of the morning when the sun rises. Stop there. Notice when the righteous Davidic king, this is the lesser David, reigned righteously on behalf of God. It was like the dawning of a new day. That's the way it's going to be when the Messiah comes. When the greater David comes, it's going to be the dawning of a new day. Notice the phrase, he says, a morning without clouds. When the tender grass springs out of the earth through sunshine after rain. All of you know how precious that is. How beautiful that is. The dawning of this new day. That's the way it's going to be in the messianic age when the greater David reigns. Notice it says that there's literally healing in its wings. That's the greater healing that we've been talking about today. Not just a temporary relief from symptoms that we have here and now, but a permanent healing with resurrection. And do you know how Malachi depicts it? Notice the resurrection. He depicts it like this. He says, and you will go forth and skip about like calves from a stall. I love that. You know, I spent more time around airplanes than I ever did animals. I hardly know anything about animals. I'm horrible. But I know farmers like Bob and that your background and the Fredericksons, both Greg and Luann, you've seen these little calves come out of the stall. And you see that they have these little spindly legs. But the first time they kind of get it together, they are so ecstatic. They are so fired up. They're running around. And that's the way we're going to be. I'll be like, do you remember that knee thing that I had when I fell and I was a a clumsy guy and I fell? Look at me go now. And some of you will say, do you remember my ear? I couldn't hear a thing. Look at me now. Remember, some of you will say, well, remember my eye or remember this? And we'll just look at this. We're going to be like a a bunch of calves that just came out of the stall that just discovered our bodies. And we're just going, this is great. In fact, so taken with this was I. Write this down if you want. This is on YouTube. You can type this in. It's only 13 seconds long. So before you go to bed tonight, maybe you have a bad day the rest of the day. Maybe you're feeling not too good in your earthly bodies. Your earth suits are wearing out. Type in YouTube, calves frolicking on the first day out of the barn. Again, calves frolicking on the first day out of the barn. It's 13 seconds. Watch it before you go to bed tonight and say, that's going to be me in the resurrection. Brothers and sisters, Jesus heals the first time so that you know you're going to have the greatest healing of all when he comes the second time. That's the point that Matthew is showing us throughout the Gospels. Brothers and sisters, sadly, many people, even in the institutional church, as Bob has been rightly rebuking, they're not satisfied with the Christian faith that provides the forgiveness of sins in this ultimate healing. They only live for here and now. You and I can't be the same. Yes, the healing here and now is certainly precious. And we've prayed for many people, and we will continue to do that. Uh, Bob, we've prayed for him many times. He's been healed. I've been healed. So many of you that we've prayed for, you've been healed. And we've got many that we are praying for now. But dear ones, we have to know that that's all temporary compared to the great healing to come. In fact, Jesus says as much, Mark 836 through 37, he says, For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what will a man give in exchange for his soul? The term soul there, pasuke, can refer to the whole person, but it also refers to the immaterial portion of a person that goes on after death. Death in the Bible is not annihilation, it is separation. Some people think, well, death is annihilation, it's the ceasing of existence. It's not. Death is in the Bible is separation. 
physical death of a human being is the separation of body and the soul. The soul for the unregenerate goes to a place of temporal torment called Hades, awaiting the lake of fire, whereas the soul of the believer goes to be with the Lord in the new Jerusalem. And we see that in 2 Corinthians 5, 8, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. What Jesus is saying is what would you gain if you had everything here, but when you breathed your last, indeed you forfeit your soul. Next time you're at a, uh, an event with young people who often don't think about these things, maybe at a graduation party, play the then what game. The then what game looks like this. They say, hey, what are you going to do after graduation? Well, I'm going to go to college. Well, then what? Well, then I think I'm going to get a good job. Well, then what? And if you play this long enough, they get to retirement. We'll keep playing. Well, then what? Eventually they die. If you play the then what game long enough, you die. Then what? If you lived 120 years and never had so much as a hiccup, yet the moment you breathe your last, you go to the lake of fire? What's the point? Brothers and sisters, that's what Jesus was driving at today. We need the ultimate healing. The bad news revealed in the Bible is that all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The wages of this sin is death, not just temporary, but one day eternal separation from God. The good news is that God sent forth the Son, the Son who existed as God from all eternity at a point in history, humbled himself and became a man through the virgin birth. Jesus, truly God, truly man, lived the perfect life that none of us could so that by faith in him, his righteousness could be clothed to our account. The same Jesus who lived the perfect life also went to a cross and he died a substitutionary death. Jesus the just on behalf of us, the unjust, in order that we may be brought to God. When Jesus died on the cross, he took upon himself the full measure of God's wrath that you and I deserve to be punished with and he paid it off. That is for those who believe. The proof that Jesus did these things was seen by the fact that on the third day after his bodily death, he was bodily raised from the dead. The same Jesus ascended into the heavens. He's seated at the right hand of God, fulfilling Psalm 110.1, from where he's coming again to bring a glorious kingdom for his people with healing in its wings, where you and I will be frolicking like a bunch of calves in a resurrection. But for his enemies, it's wrath and destruction. What must we do to have this ultimate healing? Well, Jesus commands every person to repent and to believe the gospel. Repentance is a change of our mind and a change in direction, turning from unbelief and turning to faith in Christ alone. Today, if you will trust in Jesus Christ alone, you have the ultimate healing, the forgiveness of sins, and you too will be a partaker of this glory you see in Revelation 22.2, talking about the new Jerusalem, for only those who believe, it says that in the middle of its street on either side of the river was the tree of life. Stop there. That's the tree of life that Adam and Eve were excluded from in the garden. All of us have been excluded from that. But for those of you who trust in Jesus, he'll give it back. You're brought back to the garden. It says bearing 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree for were for what? They were for the healing of the nations. Dear ones, every single person here, every person listening should believe in Jesus Christ and receive the ultimate healing. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we do thank you for your word. We thank you that we can have the ultimate healing of resurrection, the forgiveness of sins, all because of what Christ did for us. We do pray, Heavenly Father, that you give us opportunity to witness to others with the gospel that we would be those who are convinced that the best is yet to come, that we would live for this glorious kingdom and the ultimate healing so that we don't fall for the sins that so easily entangle us here and now. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, today we have the honor of celebrating the Lord's Supper together. And as Steve Gretsch rightly said here at Gospel of Grace Fellowship, the Lord's Supper is for all who believe in Jesus Christ. So if you're a believer, we welcome you here to the table of the Lord. What I'm going to do is I'm going to read to you the words of institution. I'll make a few comments and then we'll pray. 
By the way, here at Gospel of Grace, when you come up, if you're new, you come up to the table, you'll be led up by the ushers at the proper time. You'll come and take the wafer, the little cup, and then there's a waste paper basket where you can throw the cups away. So let's read from 1 Corinthians 11, 23 through 26, the words of institution. The Apostle Paul said this, he said, For I receive from the Lord what I also deliver to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Now stop there. Notice the idea of the Lord's Supper is about remembrance. Remembrance is important for the people of God. Why? Because we're forgetful. When the Lord brought the Israelites through the Jordan River, he had them put 12 stones there. Why? To remember. Remembering is important that we would remember what the Lord has done. Notice he says in the same way, also he took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. The imagery behind the Lord's Supper is that Jesus is the substitute, that his broken body and his shed blood institutes the new covenant by which we can have the forgiveness of sins. Every time you and I partake of the Lord's Supper, we're remembering what Christ has done, but we're also making a proclamation to ourselves and the world until he comes again. One day he's coming again and we will partake of the great marriage supper of the Lamb. Bob was talking about that today in Sunday school. This is a rehearsal dinner for that. Dear ones, as we come and partake of the elements, let us remember, maybe the next time we partake of it, it's with the Lord himself. The Lord who said, I will not partake of the fruit of the vine until I take it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we do thank you for the work of your Son, we thank you that as we come to the supper, we can remember what you did for us, that through the shedding of your blood, the blood of your son, Lord, that we can have forgiveness of sins, that we can have the absolute ultimate healing of everlasting life. Lord, we do pray that we would remember the great promises that you have for us, that we'd be those who persevere, that we'd be those who look for the day that you come through the clouds to bring us to the great marriage supper of the Lamb. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.